Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. The final act, Presidents Trump and Macron holding a press of this hour as the G7 wraps up. The trade hotline rings. Trump flips the U.S. markets after saying the Chinese called. And helps on the way. G7 leaders agree to tackle the Amazon fire crisis. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to the show this Monday. Never mind first move this morning. We've already had at least 50 moves already from the G7 over in France. The upshot, though, is investors are calmed, at least for now. Why? Well, let me take you through it. President Trump says China called and wants to get back to the trade negotiating table. China's press might be disputing that right now. But uh, China's Vice Premier Liu He said that he did oppose further escalation. President Trump also suggesting he could delay some of the tariffs too. Well, what a difference 72 hours makes. There's also more good news too. The US president dropping large hints that the US and Japan are moving towards finalising a trade deal and the French finance ministry confirming an end to the digital tax dispute, an issue that risks seeing tariffs slapped on French wine imports into the United States. Now, that would have been a real disaster. The bottom line for the market, so deals are better than disputes. The US majors lost well over 2% on Friday amid the tit-for-tat tariff barrage. But context, again, always important here. Losses for the week totaled around 1.5%. The S&P 500 still less than 6% from record highs, up 13% year-to-date. Important to point that out. Most European markets... Benefiting, though, from the positive trade noises, but coming too late in the session to save Asia. Losses of 1% or more for the majors there, as you can see. We also saw the Chinese currency falling to an 11-year low versus the US dollar. Plenty to discuss. Let's get to the G7 and unpack some of this. The G7 summit wrapping up in around half an hour's time. US President Donald Trump joining French President Emmanuel Macron for the closing news conference. Stay tuned. We will bring you that live. But it's been a busy morning in Biarritz already where the US-China trade war continues to dominate the broader conversation. Jim Bitterman is in France and Matt Rivers in Beijing for us to give us all the details. Jim, it was always going to be a lively press conference, Jim, but as far as trade is concerned, sentiment seemed to turn on the idea that there'd been a call between US and, uh, and uh, Chinese negotiators. But We can't clarify if indeed that did happen. Talk us through the details. 
<laughs> exactly, Julia. It's what some of my colleagues in the background here in the press room are calling whiplash messaging because we're hearing different signals from the White House practically every hour. Well, not quite, but it's uh, at least twice yesterday. And then again this morning, there's been some problems. It started yesterday at, at uh, breakfast with Boris Johnson. And Mr. Trump was asked uh, if he had any second thoughts about the tariffs on China. And he said he always had second thoughts. So people interpreted that to mean that perhaps he was softening his position on China. When the White House heard that, they tried to walk it back, and they said, no, what he was trying to say, and he didn't understand the question, what he was trying to say, he regretted not raising tariffs higher. So that was uh, one take on it. Then this morning, uh, Mr. Trump said in his uh, follow-up with uh, the Egyptian president, he said uh, China called last night. He said that the call was productive. Um, and he said that the sort of thrust of it was, let's get back to the table. They want to make a deal, said Mr. Trump. They want calm. That's a great thing, frankly. So where it lies exactly with the White House, uh, it's anybody's uh, guess. Because, frankly, it's been both ways over the last 24 hours. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a great point here, Jim, that it is down to interpretation here, perhaps over what the president meant. But of course, the White House then came out and took a really firm line. Um, just come in here, Matt, to talk to me about the Chinese side here, because we did hear from Liu He saying, look, we don't want to escalate this further. But at the same time, elements of the press over in China saying, uh-uh, call didn't take place as far as they know. What do we know here? Well, officially, the line, Julia, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at a press conference earlier today was that they didn't confirm or deny that one or more calls took place. That's not a huge surprise. We usually hear from the Ministry of Commerce uh, here in Beijing when it comes to confirming any contact between uh, trade negotiators on both sides between the U.S. and China. But China's government, at least for now, not confirming whether a call took place. If we do hear something from the Chinese government, it'll likely be from the Commerce Ministry. But, you know, going off Jim's point here, the, the constant whiplash that we've seen back and forth, I think it's really important for our viewers, you know, if you're trying to figure out where is this going, you simply cannot rely on the rhetoric coming out of the White House and from the President of the United States, simply because it changes so often. What you can look at, though, tangible actions. Where do we stand right now? It was on Friday that China raised tariffs on $75 billion of American imports here. Things like oil, agricultural products, automobiles. Then it was the Trump administration following up, saying they're going to raise rates from 25 to 30 percent on $250 billion in tariffs that are already in place. And by the end of the year, there's another $300 billion worth uh, of tariffs coming on Chinese imports to the U.S. Those rates are going to go from 10 to 15 percent. So rhetoric, it's all sounding maybe better right now. The president's signaling yet again that maybe he's more in favor of a deal or maybe times are good. But if you're looking at what is actually happening, there are tariffs that are in place on both sides that are set to be raised. And until substantive action takes place to stop that from happening beyond mere words, that is where we are with this trade war. We are a long way away from a deal being struck. You make such a great point, and I do think we have to take a step back here. And what I see from both sides here amid all the rhetoric is two sides that are very unwilling here to give any ground. No one looks like or at least wants to be perceived that they're struggling with their economy, that they're suffering in some way and therefore have to concede ground here. Both sides want to to make this a win and that's going to be the challenge in, in reaching a deal here. What we did see on, on Friday was, was the president comparing enemies, asking whether Jay Powell or, or Xi Jinping was the greater enemy here of the United States. I want to ask you how that went down, because again, perception's everything in China too. The idea that the United States is, is calling Xi Jinping an enemy here. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you have the president of the United States calling Xi Jinping an enemy, which is kind of more in line, I guess you could say, with traditional U.S. foreign policy, which looks at China as an adversary. But then earlier today, you have President Trump tweeting that President Xi is a really great leader. So, so which is it? And I think if you're, it's not just those of us in the media following this. If you're Beijing, you get whiplash on this, too. You know, in terms of what rhetoric is coming out of the White House and how does Beijing respond to that. But what you have seen from Beijing is a very consistent message. That's one thing that China has done from the beginning here. They accuse the United States of being the irrational partner here, of being the one that started all of this. They don't talk about the fact that, you know, the United States has a lot of legitimate grievances with the way China does business. And then they soldier on and they continue to get rhetoric, nationalist rhetoric out in their state media here. The public statements are more measured, calling the U.S. to get back to the negotiating table to to get back to rational discussion, calm, uh, you know, de-escalation to solve this problem. But, you know, it's, it's not just the media. It's not just politics in the United States that, that is causing, you know, they're feeling this whiplash from the president. It's also Beijing and the way that, you know, they have to be forced to respond to lots of different messages out of the White House. Yeah, absolutely. The path to a deal here looks increasingly complex. Matt Rivers, thank you so much for joining us on that. Jim, stay where you are, because I also want to uh, bring in the other hot topic, of course, of the G7, which was Iran. French President Emmanuel Macron inviting Iran's foreign minister, Javed Zarif, as a surprise guest. It may have been a surprise for G7 watchers, but the US President Donald Trump said that the French leader had run the idea by him first. I knew everything he was doing. And I approved whatever he was doing, and I thought it was fine. And I think it's too soon to meet. I didn't want to meet. I said, I don't want to meet right now. But it's soon going to be time to meet with Iran, and it's going to be a great thing for Iran. They have a great potential. Coming on this, of course, the French president seemingly trying to play mediator here between the United States and Iran. But there are broader tensions here, too. What progress, if any, do we think was made as a result of bringing the foreign minister in here? Uh, I would say at this point, Julia, none. Um, the fact is that uh, the, the, the foreign minister, Zarif, had been in France last week and met with basically um, the same people he met with yesterday. He uh, met with the Macron and with the, the French foreign minister. They talked things out last week. And at that point, apparently, the idea came up with inviting Zarif to uh, yesterday's meetings. Uh, he came. And the question we have, of course, uh, the overall objective here for Macron is to lessen tensions between the United States and Iran. Uh, but uh, what we don't know is what, what the objective was specifically yesterday. What was he trying to do? Was he trying to get uh, Trump to uh, meet with Zarif? Uh, if that was the case, uh, it wasn't on. Uh, basically, the president said no comment when he was asked about the potential for a meeting with him. Uh, and some uh, people around the president, like his former advisor, Nikki Haley, said that it was disrespectful. Uh, of the president for President Macron to fly in or invite in um, Mr. Zarif. Uh, Trump said that that's not the case, that it wasn't disrespectful. But nonetheless, uh, I don't think that the ball was moved forward at all in terms of relations with Iran, although there is going to be a joint declaration uh, on Iran basically saying that all of the members here, the G7 members, don't believe that uh, Iran should be allowed to get to obtain uh, nuclear weapons. Julia? Yeah, so some agreement at least, but um, hmm. 
Not that much. Jim Bitterman, thank you so much for joining us uh, from the G7 there. Yeah. All right, and a stark reminder of the ongoing tensions, the Iranian government announced it's deployed warships to the Gulf of Aden. Joining us now to talk about that and Macron's Middle East diplomacy, John Defterius. John, great to have you with us. I'm sure you were just Thanks, listening sure. to that too. What's your assessment of this situation? Because again, clearly, uh, President Macron trying to play mediator here, but we know the stark contrast in not only the handling of, of many of the nations here versus the United States over the nuclear accord, but to how to tackle the situation with Iran going forward. Yeah, I have to suggest that with President Macron, it's a pretty audacious move to bring the foreign minister of Iran. He did give his G7 partners, including the United States and Germany, a heads up, but not a lot of heads up. So uh, it was quite a surprise in a meeting in the city hall of Biarritz. Uh, we have to remind our viewers that it is the Europeans who are trying to keep that 2015 agreement alive. Not very successfully. In fact, the Iranians have criticized the European Union for not doing more economically here. But he did pull it off and he did put Iran back onto the agenda. That is very uh, important. But a sober assessment by the real power in the European Union, that, of course, is Angela Merkel of Germany, even though she's probably in her last year uh, in office. Uh, she said, and this is a quote, there are big interests in solving the conflict, but it is a fragile and difficult process. Now, it's also interesting to see what the Iranians were doing. Zarif left France, uh, went to change plans, and is on his way to Beijing to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative in China. And then he sent a tweet out suggesting he's going to Japan and Malaysia next. I don't want to read too much into this, but this is clearly an effort to re-engage with Europe and uh, potentially re-engage with Asia and a pivot here to try to boost growth because the U.S. sanctions are so very painful Ironically, the sanctions are also on Zarif from the United States. And the fact that Macron invited him, we cannot overlook the diplomatic uh, maneuvering by the French president. No, absolutely not. And I don't believe in coincidences of timing either with this. Talk us through the decision by Iran at this moment to shift what they're calling their most advanced destroyer to the Gulf of Aden here to protect Iranian vessels. Uh, I think I should call it the, the great push and pull of Iran politics. Uh, Iranian politics are very complex. On one side, you have the diplomats and the president, Rouhani, giving Zarif cover, suggesting it was a good opportunity because the hardliners were criticizing Zarif for going to France and to the G7. On the other side, we have the army chief of staff making that declaration, the advanced destroyer going to the Gulf of Aden. I don't want to become cynical here, but the official line is that Iran is protecting uh, its vessels in the Middle East. This is a power play by Iran to uh, exert influence in the broader Middle East. And if you look at the map here, the Red Sea feeds into the Gulf of Aden. We have the east-west pipeline in Saudi Arabia going from the big fields of Dahran across the country in Saudi Arabia to the port of Yambu and then loading huge tankers that come out of the Gulf of Aden. I would suggest that uh, what Iran is doing is going to conflict with Saudi Arabia and its American allies, of course, trying to protect the Middle East. This will ratchet things up. The oil market's recovering, Julia, but, but not because of this, but because we see perhaps, perhaps, as you were discussing with Matt Rivers there, a truce on the China trade front, and this is helping perhaps demand going forward. But it's very early days, as you know, with the U.S.-China dispute.
Yeah, and the tone, the tone on these talks changes minute by minute, quite frankly, John, as you yes, well sure. know. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. All right, and you mm -hmm. need to stay with CNN because we will bring you the Trump-Macron press conference the moment it begins, set to start in around 15 minutes' time. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the stories making headlines around the world. Iran denying any of its forces were hit by Israeli airstrikes in Syria on Saturday. Israel has released these images. It says they show Iranians in Syria carrying a drone. Israel's military says its airstrikes foiled a planned drone attack on Israel by Shia militia and Iranian forces. More than 80 people have been arrested in one of the most violent weekends in Hong Kong since mass protests began back in June. On Sunday night, several police officers drew their pistols and one fired a warning shot into the air. Water cannon was used for the first time in the city. Chinese state media signaled Beijing is losing patience with the protesters. G7 leaders in France held a working session on climate change and agreed to help countries affected by the Amazon fires as quickly as possible. In just the last few moments, the president of Brazil tweeted an angry response, calling Macron's attacks gratuitous as if Brazil were a colony. We'll bring you the latest on the fire as soon as we get it. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but coming up on First Move, the curtain falls in Biarritz. We're waiting for the final act of the G7. President Trump and Macron will hold a joint news conference shortly. And the curtain rises on Wall Street. Fallout from the summit sets U.S. futures alight. We'll be discussing. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. And we're still looking like a positive start to the trading week here on Wall Street as the US and China turn down the trade rhetoric. Futures have been sharply lower earlier today, though they quickly turned around when President Trump said China is ready to resume trade talks. No confirmation yet from China that the two sides talk by phone, but investors aren't waiting around here. Trump also said that he could delay fresh tariffs on China. We could hear more from President Trump on trade when he holds a news conference with French President Emmanuel Macron very soon. In the meantime, China's lead trade negotiator is calling for a, quote, calm resolution to the dispute. Joining us now, Douglas Holtz-Eakin. He's the president of the American Action Forum and Economic Policy Center. He's also a former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Douglas, fantastic to have you with us. There's clearly a lot of noise, some Thanks of it me. conflicting, coming from the G7 on trade here. What specifically are you, are you listening to here? And, and are you comforted by the noises that we're hearing? Uh, I'm not particularly comforted by today's <laughs> rhetoric. Um, you know, we've seen this movie before. Uh, the president's very attuned to financial markets, the stock market in particular. Uh, Friday was a very rough day, and it was unsurprising to me that he set out over the weekend to try to calm investors. And I think it's important to step back and look at the, at the substance. Uh, the Chinese from the beginning have said, if you put tariffs in place, we will respond commensurately. And they've done that. And last Friday, they responded with, uh, you know, tariffs on $75 billion with the same dates as the U.S. tariffs. And the president escalated in two ways. Uh, he compared uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, to uh, Xi Jinping, the, the, the Chinese president, um, and both as enemies. And he, uh, in, you know, put in more tariffs. So when you get to the reality, we've got increasing tariffs on both sides, no particular progress on the trade deal. And I don't think any great reason to be comforted by the state of affairs. You know, you made a great point on Friday of last week. You said that China chose to announce their response 
around an hour before Jay Powell was set to speak in, <laughs> in Jackson Hole. That then precipitated an, an angry response, and you referred to that tweet comparing who's the greater enemy here, Jay Powell or, or Xi Jinping here. Do you feel like that was a strategic response by China? And, and unfortunately, President Trump sort of fell into the trap. Uh, I, I do think that's what happened. Uh, no, China's response was uh, as expected. When they chose to do it, I thought it was very strategic. Uh, he, the president has been very critical of the Fed in general. He has been particularly uh, upset that they have not cut rates, strengthened uh, the, the U.S. economy, and in particular financial markets, in the midst of the trade war. He, he wants them to back him up and to basically have monetary policy driven by his negotiating tactics. Uh, the Fed, of course, has a mandate to look at the broader economy and is not going to do that. I think the Chinese are well aware of both of these things, and, and they decided that this would be the best way to uh, respond by not only inflicting some economic pain, but inflicting a little political damage as well. You know, one of the other things that came out of the G20 was the, the interpretation of the second thoughts. When the president was asked if he had second thoughts about, about the escalation of, of, of the trade situation with, with China, he said, look, I, of course I have second thoughts. And people suggested that the, perhaps he was thinking that he'd done the wrong thing here. And then the White House came out and clarified and said, no, actually, we regret not escalating further here. You get a sense that on both sides, everyone's afraid of, of showing weakness here. Do you think we're still underestimating how focused the president is here on tackling China at the risk of, of a weaker economy here? He's willing to sacrifice a bit of growth here, perhaps, to tackle China. Uh, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that throughout his career as a businessman and now as president, uh, he is extremely uh, willing to undertake risks, even to the point of being reckless. And uh, I don't think you should underestimate his willingness to have the U.S. suffer some economic damage in the pursuit of trying to win this trade war. I think that's been true from the beginning. Uh, I also think it's a, a characteristic of, of this president that you can never tell what's an assessment of the facts and what's a strategic statement? And so uh, you, you often get this situation where he says one thing, appears to co contradict himself. Someone in the White House is cleaning it out, cleaning it up. And you don't really know if this is just part of the negotiating tactic or a genuine error. And, and it makes it very difficult for the Chinese in particular to figure out how to make progress toward a deal because he keeps them off balance constantly. It's been a frustration of theirs from the beginning. Uh, for many days, they didn't even know who they were negotiating with, much less the demands of the United States. So this has been a, a difficult negotiation on both sides. It is taking an economic toll. I don't think that can be disguised. It's, it's harmed uh, the U.S. It's harmed China. It's harmed global trade and global growth. And resolving it should be the top priority. Uh, and resolving it quickly would be better. I don't think that's how the president views the problem. You know, it's interesting. One of the barometers that we're using here is the stock market, both of the likelihood that a trade deal gets done, the weaker the markets go, the more likely the president will ultimately want to make a deal, but also for the U.S. economy here. And I do think it's important that we separate these two things. Would you agree with that? Separate the markets and the U.S. economy, because while we're seeing some weakness in housing, in farming, in the manufacturing sector, the bulk of the economy is the U.S. consumer and consumption, and actually that remains pretty strong here. I think that's a crucial point. Uh, uh, the president focuses a lot on the stock market. Uh, the president is the person many people take their cue from, and so you see a lot of attention on the stock market. 
But the stock market is not the U.S. economy. As you point out, there are pockets of weakness. The housing market's been in a slump for two years. Uh, we've seen agriculture and manufacturing harmed by the trade war itself, and, and they're um, near stall speed right now. But the remainder of the economy, and in particular the household sector, which is 70% of, of GDP, is in very good shape and has grown consistently at about 2.8% for three years. Unemployment is very low. Wages are rising. Uh, we even got another good report on the, on the business sector today in, in the form of capital goods orders. So there is good news out there if you look past the stock market and the fluctuations it's suffered. And that's the thing that should matter for those worried about the 2020 election and a recession, for those yeah. worried about the, the capacity of the U.S. to keep the global growth going. Yeah, such a crucial point. Douglas Holtz, you can, sir, thank you so much for joining us, the president of the American thank Action you. Forum there. All right, the opening bell is next. Stay with us. Plenty more to come on First Move. First move, I'm Julia Chesley, and you are watching the opening bell downtown at the New York Stock Exchange. We were anticipating a higher start for U.S. stocks this morning, and we have it. We're awaiting, of course, President Donald Trump's G7 press conference with the French President Emmanuel Macron. That's expected to start in around an hour's time. A slight delay there. We could get more clarity from the president on where trade talks stand with China. The president says China called the United States and signaled that it wants to get back to the bargaining table. China has not yet confirmed this version of events. The major U.S. averages right now gaining back some of Friday's sharp trading losses. Tech stocks were uh, hardest hit and uh, they fell some 3%, so expect them to bounce back at least for now. Tough to call on where we go throughout this session. Await that press conference and any further details. Let's return to that and our top story, of course, in Biarritz. We await the two presidents set to speak. Let's get the thoughts of someone with decades of experience in deciphering international affairs and economics and events like this. Bob Hormatz is vice chairman at Kissinger Associates and a former U.S. Under Secretary of State. Bob, fantastic to have you with us. Always a pleasure to have you on First Move. What a relief that you're with us too, because hopefully you can make sense of uh, all the noise that we've got from the G7 over this weekend. I'll give it a try anyway. Oh, no. Good luck with that. <laughs> so your assessment, where are we right now? And let's talk trade perhaps first. Well, Julia, I think it's, first of all, thank you for having me. Second, it's very hard to make sense uh, in a clear way of what's happened. Um, there are some positive developments possibly emerging from the conversations here. One, the President Trump has indicated that uh, agreement in principle has been reached with Japan on a bilateral trade arrangement. The Japanese have not... Uh, use that term. They've said more progress needs to be made. And now we have this morning indications that things are perhaps moving ahead again in talks with China. But we've heard positive news before, and that is something we really need to see confirmed, not just in rhetoric, but actually in movement on the substance. And so those are positive, but we really need to see what emerges from the actual conversations, in fact. The other elements of this summit seem to me to be a combination of confusion, because we're really not sure 
that what happened in the meetings is what is being reflected in a lot of the narratives that uh, heads of state use coming out of the meetings, uh, diversions um, and division, because a lot of the issues that were supposed to be resolved really are not resolved, uh, at least to the average viewer's eyes um, now. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? If we go back 24 hours, that the message coming from, from the White House and Larry Kudlow, in fact, was that any confusion over whether the president had second thoughts on, on the current state of relations with China was just that he, he was sorry that he hadn't escalated tensions with them further and perhaps raised tariffs further. I just feel like we're clutching at straws here and it's, it's just difficult to understand what the path here is to a trade deal when one president suggesting that another president is an enemy. Um, and what we've seen actually in the last 72 hours is a ratcheting up of tensions rather than anything else. Well, that's why I use the word confusion. You're absolutely right. Um, the, the fact is that we've been getting different signals. Did he want to do less in terms of tariffs? Did he want to do more as Larry Kudlow has uh, recently indicated. Uh, do the Chinese, did they call? Uh, what was the content of the calls? Um, I hope that there is progress. I think it'd be a very positive thing. But for the market to get euphoric uh, until it sees a higher level of evidence, A, that they're going to sit down, and B, that if they do sit down in the near future, they're actually closer to a substantive agreement. Uh, this is all very much in the ether at this point, very hard to, to determine. So to have a big rally on the basis of this, it seems to me to be somewhat premature. The Japanese talks, I think, are important. I know they were making some progress, and perhaps they will actually reach agreement. But we've seen a lot of conversation about agreements with other countries. We get up to the finish line, and then a lot of details derail things. Or they do reach agreement, and then somehow they're pulled back. So... In the area of trade, this level of uncertainty, uh, not only is it, uh, I think, uh, destabilizing for markets, but for people who have to make investment decisions as CEOs of companies, uh, the lack of clarity is, is troublesome. I'm hoping, and I'd like to be an optimist, I'm hoping that, that things move ahead on China and Japan, uh, but I really, on the basis of the past, need to be convinced that that is, in fact, going to happen. Bob, I just wonder how much discussion is going on and happened at the G7 with regards to the, the protests in Hong Kong. Because I'm not sure that we, we're discussing enough the fact that China is in a situation here, at least mainland China and Beijing, where they face protests right on their doorstep here and the risk of, of looking soft in the handling of that or, in fact, soft in the handling of any outside aggressor like the United States on the trade deal here is a, an increasing risk for them. They have to play hardball here to look strong, to look to look powerful. Well, I don't know that Hong Kong was discussed at the G7. It probably was not discussed in, uh, in any depth. But the broader point you make, Joy, is exactly right. And that is uh, the Chinese indicated, and we saw this on Friday, they indicated that they were not going to simply accept uh, tough American actions on trade. They were going to counter with actions of their own, which they did by imposing tariffs on $75 billion worth of American goods. So the Chinese uh, have underscored repeatedly that whatever agreement is reached has to be 
a balanced agreement, that they were not going to be intimidated into an, what they would consider a lopsided agreement or unfair agreement uh, or an unequal agreement, uh, to use terminology they frequently use. They wanted to be balanced. So they are taking a very firm position in not caving into the kind of pressures that uh, I think America thought they might uh, give into. And also, I think it's important to realize the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China is on October 1. President Xi mm. wants to go in and stand tall and say, look, we are a strong country. We've come a long way. We're not going to be uh, pressured by other countries to do things that are not in our interest. Yeah, you know, the other thing to throw in here as well is when you look around that G7 table, there are a number of different countries there whose economies are slowing. They're all challenged and, and many of them could point to the trade battle and even some of them did quite sheepishly like Boris Johnson pointing out that there's a slowdown going on here perhaps as a result of the, the broader trade war here. I think one of the key questions we're grappling with as well is how material a slowdown President Trump is willing to accept in the United States economy despite what's going on elsewhere in order to tackle China here and whether that puts his own election risks or his own prospects in the 2020 election at risk. What's your assessment of that, Bob, at this stage? What are you, what are you telling clients? Well, this is where the Fed comes in. Uh, uh, the reason he's putting so much pressure on the Fed is that he now, I'm sure, he's told by Larry Kudlow and others who are good economists, that the trade war is adversely affecting the American economy. You can, uh, and, and will in the future, if in fact these additional tariffs that are now planned are actually implemented. So he's putting a lot more pressure on Jay Powell and, and the uh, FOMC to lower rates uh, substantially to offset some of the weakness that's caused by this uh, trade conflict. So. Uh, and in addition, his view is that that uh, would push the dollar down, which would again help boost American exports, which helps the economy as well, and also uh, would be used to put pressure on China. So I think he's hoping that the Fed, in his mind, has his back and will avoid any substantial weakening. The question is, A, will the Fed do that? And B, even if the Fed does lower rates a lot, how much will it help to really offset not just the disruption from higher tariffs, but the uncertainty that the business community faces and the fact that a lot of supply chains for farmers and a lot of exporters, mm. high-tech exporters, are going to be disrupted. And you may not be able to get those back anytime soon. So it may have a long tail uh, when, you, when you look at what the longer-term implications of this are. Absolutely. Some could argue if the president stopped asking quite so loudly, the... Um Federal Reserve might be a little bit more willing or able, but we'll leave it there. Bob Hall, yes. sir, thank you so much. The Fed will do its job. The Fed, the Fed has a good focus. Jay Powell, I have a lot of confidence in him and his team. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, sir. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks. All right, coming up on First Move, a landmark ruling in Oklahoma. As one judge decides if Johnson & Johnson is responsible for the state's opioid epidemic, we're live in the States with the latest next. Welcome back to First Move and a look at the global movers right now. Shares of GM and Apple are rebounding a little after suffering steep losses on Friday. Apple, in fact, falling more than 4%. GM fell more than 3%. 
when China announced fresh tariffs against the United States. President Trump then said he could order U.S. companies to leave China. Now, 1.4% of GM's total revenues come from China. Apple booked nearly $52 billion in sales from China in its most recent fiscal year. Shares of tech services company Pitney Bowes are rallying about 9%. It's selling its software solutions company to data firm SyncSort for some $700 million. So watching that one that high, as you can see, by 8.3%. Shares of Lyft, meanwhile, trading higher. Guggenheim Securities raised its rating on the ride-hailing app to a buy. It says Lyft could become profitable as soon as 2021. Right now, that stock up some 2.6%. All right, also in focus, Johnson & Johnson today, an Oklahoma judge will decide if the pharmaceutical giant is responsible for the state's opioid epidemic, or at least contributed to it. Whichever way it goes, it's going to be a landmark ruling. For more, let's bring in Alexandra Field. She joins us now from Norman Oklahoma. Alexandra, great to have you with us. Just talk us through because this is going to be a landmark decision for Johnson and Johnson, but also more broadly for other companies, perhaps deciding whether or not to settle sooner. Talk us through it. Absolutely, Julia. You really nailed it there. Look, this is something that everyone is going to be watching because this is really the first trial of its kind. You've got dozens of states that are looking to sue pharmaceutical companies or actively in the process of trying to do that, uh, blaming them essentially for creating or fueling the opioid crisis that has swept this country, killing hundreds of thousands of people in the last 20 years or so. But Oklahoma is the first state to make it to trial. They squared off against Johnson & Johnson and its subsidiary, Janssen. They allege that the marketing and sales of two of its prescription drugs fueled the crisis right here. Now they're going after Johnson & Johnson for $17.2 billion. For its part, the pharmaceutical company says they have uh, no part in any wrongdoing. They say they're being used as a scapegoat for what is a much broader social problem, and they don't believe that this case is going to hold up in court. We'll have the answer, though, in just a few hours, Julia. I mean, they fought all the way along here. Johnson and Johnson. We've seen uh, Purdue Pharma fall by the wayside. What happens if this goes against Johnson and Johnson today in terms of a further appeal, perhaps, and then for other companies that are also impacted here? Yeah, I think you can count on the fact that there will be an appeal after this. Uh, It's interesting to point out that if the judge sides fully with the state uh, and allows that $17.2 billion monetary award, that would be the largest monetary award from a bench trial in the history of the United States. It also certainly will have other pharmaceutical companies watching closely because in just a few months uh, later this fall, uh, we are set to have the beginning of a federal trial, which includes some 2,000 cities, communities, municipalities and tribal lands who are all alleging that pharmaceutical companies have played a role in fueling this opioid crisis. Yeah, no surprise it's being uh, compared to the tobacco wars, of course, of the 1990s. Alexandra Field, great to have you with us. Thank you so much there for joining us from Oklahoma. All right, coming up on First Move, the British Prime Minister turning on the charm at the G7 as he pushes for a post-Brexit Britain. Stay with us, we'll have all the details. first room. Remember when Donald Trump threatened to put new tariffs on French wine? Well, the good news for American wine connoisseurs is that the United States and France have come to an agreement about the dispute that led to that threat. And it's all about a French tax on tech companies. Hallis Gold joins me now. Hallis, huge relief 
Never mind the details, that's all I can say. Talk me through what you the solution is You can drink your Bordeaux here. in peace, Julia. I, I know I was going to like import some ASAP, quite frankly. Go on. Talk us through the details. Well, Julia, here. this is all about that digital tax that, uh, French, uh, that the French president signed into law just recently, where it's about a 3% tax on revenues of companies who earn either a certain amount in France or globally. Now, American companies have contested this unfairly targets American companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook. There have been hearings. The United States, the U.S. Trade Representative even launched a special Section 301 investigation as to whether this was unfair practice. But it seems as though a compromise has been reached today in France during the G7. Apparently, this compromise, they will be signing it later today. And what it means is that France has said that they will repay these companies, the difference between their tax and this OECD plan that's in the works that's supposed to completely overhaul how global tax is determined. And it's supposed to completely put everybody on more uh, equal footing when it comes to digital services. The issue that I'm still not clear on, Julia, is actually how this will work out because the French digital tax is already in effect. But the OECD plan, we haven't even gotten sign off on it, let alone how long will it take to get it technically implemented. That's going to be at least, according to experts I've spoken to, about five years away. So we're still not quite sure what we're going to be doing in the interim. I've reached out to Amazon and Google and the likes to get their reaction. And so far, I haven't heard back from them on this compromise and whether they're happy with this agreement. And we're talking about 36 different countries trying to come up with an agreement that they're all happy with, which is um, another challenge just to throw well, into the mix here. Yeah. What's the size of this digital tax? What are we talking about here? And have we had any hints from the OECD about what kind of size tax they're talking about? Because that at least will help us gauge potentially what the difference could be if, if the French are too aggressive with their version. Right. So we don't have like total specific numbers right now. It's more of a question of specifically where you can be taxed and by whom, because that's the whole question when it comes to digital services. Google might be, let's say, a U.S. based company. But if they're making money in France, but the company that's buying their ads from them, that's targeting people in France is actually in Germany. There's obviously a lot of complicated issues there to keep in mind. And that's what the OECD plan is trying to overcome. But we don't quite know exactly what the final numbers might be. And that's why this compromise agreement, while good news for French wine lovers, for example, doesn't give us a lot of details on exactly what the difference will be, how much France would possibly have to repay, and whether these companies are happy with it. Amazon said just last week at a hearing in Washington that they will pass on the price for that digital tax to their third-party sellers starting October 1st. This is something that these companies are dealing with right now, right here. And I don't know if they will be happy to wait for the OECD plan to come into effect to get that difference in taxes. Yeah, quite fascinating. I make that a win for France on this point, perhaps at the loss of consumers if prices go up. Interesting. Hannes Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, Boris Johnson also been on the charm offensive at his first G7. The British Prime Minister used the meeting to try to foster trade relationships ahead of Brexit, which he's promised will happen by the end of October. Anna Stewart is in London. Anna, I have to say, though, I was looking at some of the lines from Boris Johnson. This one was great. Look, I just want to say I congratulate the president on everything that the American economy is achieving. It's fantastic to see that. But just to register the faint sheep-like note of our view on the trade war, <laughs> we're in favour of a trade peace on the whole and dialing it down if we can sheep-like, but he still said it, Anna. Got to be careful when you want it's a big trade deal. 
Well, quite, but you know what? It seems to have gone down all right because what we've had here yeah. is lots of good news, obviously about a trade deal between the United States and the UK. The president saying once again, we're going to do a, and I quote, very big trade deal with the UK. Um, they're saying that, you know, the EU's been an anchor around Britain's ankle. I'm going to play you the soundbite because it is fantastic. Boris Johnson using the opportunity for a very gentle rebuke. Take a listen. I just want to say I congratulate uh, the president on everything that the American economy is achieving. It's fantastic to, to see that. But just to register the faint sheep-like note of uh, our, our view on the, on the trade war, we're in favor of trade peace on, on the whole. A faint sheep-like objection that frankly was delivered so fast one quite wonders whether the president actually heard it. It certainly didn't seem to disrupt the dialogue at all despite having a face-to-face -face criticism over the trade war. And Boris Johnson has been on lots of different bilats, focusing on trade post-Brexit, of course. Another one today with the Australian Prime Minister, uh, Scott Morrison. Lots of headlines saying Bojo met ScoMo <laughs> and Ted Downing Street saying that that was a very enthusiastic chat talking about the future relationship. What Boris needs here is to come back to the UK with some good news. Julia? Yes, that line was so sheepish that President Trump appeared to miss it or dismiss it, one or the other. How did he go down? As I pointed out there, it was his first G7, and I think a lot of us watched the videos or saw the pictures of him first getting out of the car and seeing Emmanuel Macron and his wife as well, the first lady of France. And comparisons were made to the office <laughs> and David Brem. But for anyone I think who's interviewed Boris, he is a charmer. You know, he is, he's amusing. What is the UK press yeah, making of it, Anna? Well, you're looking at the pictures now. It was an absolutely yeah. fantastic moment where he gets out the taxi, misses the macros, <laughs> and then so he does an incredible point. But this is what's going down in the British press, is the incredible optics. You know, Boris Johnson has star power. He has charisma. He has war. And we are seeing that time and time again, whether it's with President Trump, the Macrons, it's such a far cry, Brits, many Brits would say, from the last Prime Minister, Theresa May, who, of course, had a slightly more, uh, what some would say, wooden uh, performance. But also, he's even managed, and this is incredible, to charm the other Donald, Donald Tusk, the European Council president. They were actually seen slapping each other on the shoulders and laughing. Julia? Yeah. Something tells me Theresa May wouldn't have laughed about that. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. And stay with CNN. President Trump and Macron, of course, expected to speak soon from the G7. We will bring you that press conference as soon as it begins. But that's it for First Move. Time to go make yours. The G7 up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.